From People.ai, this is the Legends of Sales and Marketing podcast. Each week, we'll dive into a story from a different legend of sales and marketing to find out how they changed the game. Visit people.ai slash legends for more episodes, interviews, and profiles on more of these icons of sales and marketing. Sit next to them, understand a damn life of a salesperson. It's a hard job. It's really a hard job. And uh, I would encourage all marketers to do selling for a while and to sit alongside salespeople to understand their world. Hi, folks. Justin Schreiber here. My guest today is Brian Carden, CMO of Envision. Lots of marketers claim that they're modern in their approach to marketing, but not many can say that they actually wrote the playbook. Little did Brian know when he joined a tiny $10 million startup back in 2008 that he'd be revolutionizing the way that marketers operate. That startup was Eloqua, and over the next four years, it grew to be $100 million in revenue went public, and was eventually acquired by Oracle for almost a billion dollars. On today's show, Brian shares insights on what it takes to fuel that kind of growth, how to create a category, and how he built a customer community of almost a half a billion members. Let's dive into the conversation. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Justin. How are you? My pleasure. Well, listen, we've got a fun hour lined up. I wanted to start, though, with an interesting character who coincidentally has not come up before on the podcast, none other than the famous Harold Hill from The Music Man. Now, for those of our listeners, this may be dating us a little bit, but for those that are familiar with the musical, Harold Hill, he's the con artist. He comes in and he's just trying to sell instruments and he has this idea called the Think System of learning music, yes. So I wanted to find out, first of all, I know you're a musician, did the Think System work for you? You know, it's funny, his Think System, uh, Harold Hill, who, as you said, was his con man. By the way, the music man is timeless. I think that there are themes in here that work forever. And it it was just amazingly innovative when it came out, uh, I think in the early 60s. But this idea of the Think Method uh, was, if you just thought about it, you could play your instrument. And in fact, you can't just think about marketing and it happens. You have to actually execute. So that's what a big part of my career is about, not just strategizing, but marketing is all about getting stuff done and getting it out there and iterating and doing testing. And, you know, I think marketers like yourself are all about getting stuff done, getting the campaigns out, getting it measured. So thinking is good, but not nearly sufficient. So God bless execution. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. Well, let's get back to the music then. First of all, I know music was a big part of your early life. It was a big part of your mother's life as well. Give us a little bit of background about that. You know, I can see in retrospect why I became a marketer. So my mother was a very creative person. She was a soprano. Uh, Early in her career, she was a soprano in opera roles, you know, a coloratura soprano. And then every decade, her voice would drop a little bit. And then she started doing some Broadway and off-Broadway things like Mary and the Librarian from Music Man. That was one of her roles. And then later on, she did like cabaret and saloon stuff, you know, even like an octave lower. But early on, um, we would always have creative people over the house. They would be artists. They would be musicians, uh, people who really would talk about the arts and what it means. And you contrast sort of marketers thinking creatively and storytelling with my father, who was a surgeon. He was a professor of surgery. He was a scientist. He was always reading medical journals. And so that's where I think I get my left brain, the logic, the conversion rates and the artificial intelligence and 
how do we uh, back into the waterfall and the pipeline and everything? So I think I had like a good upbringing with left brain and right brain, sort of in equal amounts from both my mother and my father. Now, did you play any instruments yourself? I did. Uh, it's funny. Uh, it was very natural for people in my family. Everybody played instruments. And my daughter, Isabel, tells a funny story. She was uh, over at a neighbor's house when she was like seven and they had a piano there. So she asked the father there, Mr. Johnson, you know, the girls would love to sing some, you know, Beauty and the Beast music to play piano. And he said, well, Isabel, I don't play piano. And Isabel said, I don't understand. All daddies play piano. Uh, she was raised in a family where virtually everybody could pick up any instrument and we were all sort of natural doing it. So I've got composers in my family. I have a lot of violinists. I have piano players, singers. Everyone sort of naturally picked up instruments. So uh, my main instrument are woodwinds, clarinet, saxophone and flute. And then I play the piano, uh, which I love you know, doing. You know, as you get older, you can't don't have the chops. You know, Miles Davis had a great quote. He says that if you didn't practice today, if you didn't practice this week, the band knows and if you didn't practice longer than a week, everyone knows. So, you know, in the case of instruments that are blowing instruments, you got to really work on your embouchure and practice all the time. And I don't have a chance to do that. So, but piano, I love playing. And that's what it is my primary instrument right now. All right. I want to talk about the sax for a minute because uh, the sax can be just the uh, a wonderful instrument, but it can also go horribly awry. These bizarre sounds coming out of this instrument that otherwise could sound fabulous. Do you have any horror stories or harrowing moments with the saxophone growing up? I love the sound of a saxophone. I think it, it it's very close to expressing a human voice. You know, the tenor saxophone, much more like a male voice, the alto and soprano, more female voices. But I remember when I was in school trying to learn improvisation. You know, I was always a good sight reader. I love reading music. I'm a student of music. But improvisation is a whole new world. And I remember in um, middle school, we were playing... Uh, Watermelon Man, uh, a Herbie Hancock song. And it's a blues, very straightforward song, but I didn't know how to improvise. But I'm someone who is always prepared. And so I saw that in my part that I had to improvise a solo for 16 bars, basically a B-flat blues. And so I looked at the chords and I looked it up and I wrote out every single note of my solo. Every, even the articulation, the dynamics, the punch, just everything was there. And so uh, we came for rehearsal and I stood up, I played my solo and the band instructor was really impressed. It was great. And he said, Brian, he gave me the thumbs up, way to go. The next week we're rehearsing it again. I get up to play the solo. And of course, what do I do, Justin? I play the exact same solo, note for note, nothing, anything. And then he looks at me a little funny and then he sees that I've been looking down at my music. The third week I get up to play the solo he turns around my music stand, takes that sheet of music that I'd written out my solo, and he keeps it. And I look at him like, what am I supposed to do? And he says, you're ready. Just play the way you think. There is Harold Hill. Just think. Like, just do, just go. And uh, it worked out great. But the key to that was I had done the fundamentals. Like, I knew every chord. I knew every scale. And I was prepared at that point to improvise. If someone just said improvise to me, I couldn't do it but I had done that preparation. And that's something as a marketer, and personally, it's really important to me. Preparation really matters. Before you talk to a customer, before you launch a campaign, you wanna do research with customers to understand what messages resonate. I do a ton of A-B testing. So I'm someone who definitely likes to prepare. That's such a great metaphor because on the one hand, in order to truly soar, you've just gotta let yourself go. 
but there's, there's so much that goes into it leading up to that. And I, I know in my own life, I want to script those moments out. There's so much at stake. You just want to, you want to write every word down. You want to capture every note. You want to rehearse it again and again. But to your point, when you do that, you lose something in, in the moment when the magic is supposed to be created. You know, I once worked with a sales leader and at the sales kickoff, he wanted to read from a teleprompter. And I said, don't read from a teleprompter, like know your material and just walk around the stage and be comfortable. He couldn't do it. And then the feedback on the review forms were just devastating, not authentic, not a natural leader. And so even though you want to be prepared, you really can't read from it. My son's getting married pretty soon and I'm going to give a little speech and I'm not going to have any paper, but I will be practiced enough that I won't say exactly what I wrote down, but I have internalized it enough. You know, I think there's a lot of lessons in being authentic to yourself and, and as you say, just soaring. I, I give that advice to a lot of people from a comms perspective. I find myself oftentimes doing media coaching and whatnot, and that's what I tell them. Write your speech out, read it three times, and then throw it away. Yeah. Because at that point, the things that really matter are going to be stuck in your brain, but you haven't read it enough yet where it just becomes a rote recitation of the words, and you'll get the best of both worlds. When I was uh, head of marketing and strategy at Forrester Research, there was one analyst. His name is Bill Doyle. And he always gave the best presentations. It was unbelievable. And so one day he's coming off stage and I go to him. I said, Bill, I got to buy a cup of coffee. You got to help me with something. And he said, sure, Brian. So we met and I said, what's the key to giving an amazing presentation? And he looked at me and he said, 20. I said, 20? Um, Like 20 slides, no more than 20 slides. He said, no, 20 minutes. Keep it short. No, not 20 minutes. I said, what's 20? And I'm responding to your your point about three. He said, you must practice your presentation no less than 20 times. It's like an actor. You can't know it, the material well enough to be able to pause, to be able to stage it, to be able to block it, move around, audience response, unless you've actually practiced your presentation 20 times. And I've never gotten to 20, but I almost always get past 10. And I do it front beginning to end at least 10 times. And you just feel so comfortable and so natural with the material. It's not memorized, as you said, you don't want to memorize it word for word like an actor, but you know the material so internally that people feel that it's real. It's coming from your heart and you can really time it well. And so I've always taken that to heart and I've always done a lot of preparation and uh, I try to get to at least 10 times. All right. So I've been dying to ask you, you were one of the only people that I know whose first marketing job, you know, marketing operator, you went straight to SVP. You skipped the manager, the group, the director, and just went straight into the SVP. So share us your secret for short-circuiting the management track and getting straight into the executive ranks. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. You know, after business school, I became a consultant for a large global consulting firm, and I became a partner there. And my specialty was marketing and sales issues, mostly for consumer goods like Heinz Ketchup and Ralph Lauren and Coca-Cola, Nabisco. And we had, uh, after I became a partner there, the nature of being a partner is you travel four days a week. You're always traveling, you're always selling, you're doing the work. And we just had twin boys and I wanted to be with them and watch them grow up. And uh, I was starting to look for a job. And then one day, Spencer Stewart, the search firm called me with a CMO job for a big company, a $5 billion a year company. I was fortunate. They were looking for someone who had a strong consulting and strategy background, good numbers, and they hired me. 
So I'm one of the few marketers who never grew up as a marketing manager, as an associate, as a director. You're right. I went from doing slides, you know, being slide man, you know, in presentations to boards of directors and CEOs to just moving into being a senior vice president, CMO of a very large company, which was very different. Um, but it was uh, it was great. I feel like I short circuited the process, but it was kind of painful, you know, uh, going over on the other side. Yeah, I'd love to hear your comparison between what it was to be a consultant versus what it was to be the actual operator. You know, as a consultant, you give your recommendations and the nature of my consulting was not operational. So we do a bunch of strategy about market entry or go to market plans or some sort of cost structure and we present it and we leave it up to the client to execute. And then I move on to the next project. And so there's not a sense of ownership or executional risk. Um, And I can get pretty risky on... Uh, the slides and the strategy because I don't have to own it. You know, I think a lot of consulting has changed now. I think they're looking for more consultants to not just make recommendations, but to actually implement them, which is different than when I was doing consulting. You know, and in marketing, you don't move on to the next project. Like you own it. You own the brand, you own your marketing stack, you own the pipeline. And so you have to do strategy as well as execute every single day. Um, So that was one observation. You own it and Uh, any strategy you come up with, you got to be able to think about how to operate it. The other thing in consulting is there's a very high bar of intellectual talent generally for consulting firms. And there's much more variability on a marketing team. You're going to have people who are good communicators and not so good communicators, people who are more creative and people who are more quantitative, people don't understand things and people who do. Um, In consulting, if I ever gave the baton to anyone on the team, I had 100% confidence they were going to execute. They didn't have to follow up. But on you know marketing teams, there's more variability in quality uh, of people. Uh, not to disparage marketing teams at all. I think they're great, but there's just more variability um, and probably less training. When you join a big consulting firm, you get like several months of training about how to do modeling and cash flow projections and all sorts of things. Um, there's less consistency uh, across marketing teams. Yeah, I wanted to zero in on that point of training. I was a consultant for several years myself. I was straight out of school, so I didn't really have any business background. And they basically put me through the boot camp, flew me all over the place because all the trainings were in different places. And to your point, I needed to learn about finances and I needed to learn about uh, market dynamics and analysis, uh, how to present myself. They sent me to a lot of presentation skills workshops. And I came out of that training program And number one, I felt a lot more confidence. I felt like I had a lot more background. Number two, I had a common language now that I could speak that everyone else spoke. And number three, I knew the drill. When we landed, I knew the frameworks that we were going to use. And so I was immediately able to start to add value. I think there's a tremendous lesson there to be learned for operators because that, that level of preparation, I don't see that as much when you move into an operating role. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. You know, consulting firms, particularly the larger ones. I'm curious, where were you? Where, where was it McKinsey? Yeah, so McKinsey is a great example. They have such good frameworks. You know, they show you how to use the software to do the bubble charts, do the, what's a Kager, what's a this. And so everyone's got the same language. You know your role on the team. Um, it's quite wonderful. And and uh, they do invest a lot in their people. Uh, but once you're done with the training, you are ready to go. You know, I think there are a lot of reasons why it doesn't work as well in marketing. Partly is that McKinsey always had a new class coming, like the people graduating from certain schools start. They've got a couple of hundred in a class at scales. I think also they have more rigor around consistency about how they do their work. They've actually codified it. 
here's what a slide looks like, and here's how you do the analysis, and here's a good story to tell, and here's what we work on, and here's how we do a market analysis or a, you know, a, you know, whatever kinds of data they want to do. So I think they've gotten very consistent. I think marketing teams are very inconsistent. And that's all something boards talk about all the time, like the salesperson or the CFO. Think about the CFO. They show the same P&L balance sheet every single time. They don't get creative. They don't like one board meeting. They show it one way. It's like the only thing that changes are the numbers. But marketers, it's so funny. It's like, hey, this board meeting, I'm going to show this and this boarding. And so there's no consistency. Uh, I think more mature, advanced marketing teams have built that consistency in how they report their performance. And that's a good sign uh, for a marketing team to get to that point, uh, but it's quite rare. Um, I do see larger marketing organizations do invest in onboarding, but part of the difference between McKinsey and a marketing team is McKinsey has a lot of generalists. You all start out as an associate and everyone sort of has the same role, but marketing, are you gonna do the same training for the person that does your paid search versus the person that runs marketing operations versus the person that does reporting versus you know your, your copywriter or your art director? Like there's so much variability and specialization on the marketing team, whereas I think the McKinsey goes for much more homogenization. Uh, you know, everyone gets that broad set of skills. Certainly early on, you're not specializing. Everyone gets the financial modeling background and how to do the analysis. That's Brian Carden, CMO of Envision. When we come back, Brian shares a novel perspective on sales and marketing alignment and the close advisor who helped him to develop this point of view. Stay with us. I'm Justin Schreiber, and you're listening to Legends of Sales and Marketing. Welcome back. I'm joined today by Brian Carden, CMO of Envision. Shortly after Brian joined Envision, his boss shared some surprising news that would launch Brian, a seasoned marketing executive, into a whole new phase of personal and professional development. Let's get back to the discussion. So I wanted to segue into your experience also as the CMO of Eloqua. Uh, to some extent, I'd say that the CEO took a risk on you, bringing you into that role. You took a risk on Eloqua as well. So set the stage for us a little bit. I think as marketers, we all know about Eloqua, but tell us about what Eloqua was at that moment and why you might've been a risky choice. So um, I had a great career, but it was a very traditional career. I had never been a marketer of software. You know, as I said, my clients uh, in consulting were consumer goods brands. They were not software. My experience was at Forrester Research. And so they took a big chance on me. One thing that was interesting, though, at Forrester, I was one of the first Eloqua customers. And in looking back, that's why they wanted to hire me. Like I understood the value of what Eloqua was bringing. And that is a system of record. Up until then, marketers used many different systems, mostly just email service providers, you know, the uh, the MailChimps and other things, Yesware and everything. And we created a real system of records. So everything that marketing does is in one place. The campaigns, campaign performance, your contacts, all of that is in there, your lead scoring, et cetera. And so the chance I took was to join a tiny company. You know, I went from Forrester, a publicly traded company. Before that, Reed Elsevier, a $5 billion company. I joined Eloqua. It was only $10 million a year. And the CEO, Joe Payne, because I wasn't sure if I wanted to join, he said, Brian, did Eloqua make a difference for you at Forrester? And I said, oh, it was like night and day. We couldn't measure anything before. We couldn't. And I was talking and talking, and he's just smiling. He says, why wouldn't you want to change how marketers do their jobs? Why wouldn't you want to be at the center? And that really was a 
the most important role for me. And it really set me on an amazing trajectory. Uh, you know, being the CMO of the leading marketing automation platform at the time, selling to marketers, being on stages, talking about it. I had to run marketing really well because everyone's looking at me like, what are you doing? How does Eloqua do lead scoring? How does Eloqua do, you know, lead routing? How do you think about territories? How do you, all these things. So it was a great time for me. And, uh, you know, I hope everybody has that in their career where you ride a rocket ship, you know, 10 million to start. And then at the end, we were doing 100 million and uh, we went public in 2012 and eventually we were bought by Oracle. So it was a great, great experience for me, mostly because I wasn't just a marketer of a software company. I was evangelizing a new way to do marketing. And I felt that I would move with real purpose. I'm not just selling security software or middleware or something I didn't have a passion for. I really wanted to transform the lives of marketers and give them a seat at the table. And I felt that Eloqua and later Marketo, HubSpot, Pardot, all these companies gave them the data, gave them all the metrics, the dashboards to be very credible at the board level. We take for granted today the modern tools that we've got, but when you came into the fray, it was really a grab bag of technologies that you had to string together yourself. And to your point, there was no real instrumentation that let you look across your full set of marketing efforts to, to make sense of it. So, so you kind of come in, you recognize that you are at the threshold of a new era of marketing. How did you actually put the strategy together, execute against the strategy to take a company from 10 million to 100 million? Well, first, you know, not only did we have instrumentation, we were generally considered the arts and crafts department. Like you may remember when, you know, the marketing person, you know, here's the website and here's our new logo and here's some colors and here's new swag. Like, look at this great sweatshirt and look at the hat we have. Like, that's what marketers did 30 years ago. The sophisticated marketers did direct mail. Like, OK, we're doing direct mail. But, uh, you know, I started marketing before email was sort of mainstream. And so it was very interesting for me. In the case of Eloqua, the message really resonated. And so we grew with a category. It was first replacing email service providers and then adding a ton of value. There were several pillars to that. The first part was um, getting to the influencers. And so um, we made sure that key CMOs who had a big following were using our platform. So we um, prioritized uh, influencers in the marketing community. Um, second is we set up our own online community because we wanted marketers talking to each other. We wanted to be a way for everyone to communicate and provide that sort of platform. The analyst firms, Forrester, Gartner, IDC, and others were also very influential. This was a um, sort of a cornerstone platform for companies. There's a lot of security issues, a lot of infrastructure. Um, how do you integrate with other systems? And so we had to sell it to the CIO, to the CFO. It was a pretty good investment at the time. So we worked on a lot of uh, those things with Forrester and Gartner. We set up a customer advisory board. I would say, Justin, the real key piece is we let the community co-develop the platform with us, and they felt real ownership of the results. And I think that's sort of a classic play a lot of marketers use now, where they go out to the community and say, here is what we're thinking for our product roadmap. What features or what functionality do you think we need to build? What would work for you? And at the end, they feel real ownership of that. And that's a wonderful thing. So that was a big part of it. I think it was early on we did that in 2008, having the community appeal part of our success. Let's drill down on that community. When, when the community reached its peak, how many members of the community were there and what kind of engagement were you seeing in that group? The more stark memory is in the beginning. 
you know, it's like a ghost town, like a facade, like we set up this community and we populate it with a bunch of questions and, you know, frontage of there's the saloon and there's the church and there's the, the hotel and, and everything. And then no one came. It was just, uh, it was embarrassing. And then over time, you know, we got more people, but we had to start it. So we had to ask questions and we had friends of the community answer the questions. And then eventually we had about 400,000 people in the community uh, and it became very robust. One of the side benefits, of course, is that when you host a community and there's lots of people commenting and sharing things, Google organic search just loves that. And so one of the side benefits is we had a ton of people. Uh, our search rankings went up pretty dramatically uh, as we built this community. And we were very early on. There weren't that many platforms for this. I'm trying to remember, did we do on Lithium or I forget the name of the, the platform at the time, but it was a very white knuckled sort of moment, you know, when you launch this community and no one comes, it's just crickets. It's, I see you smiling, you know, have you had experiences like this too? With I, I, I've been there and done that. And you're right. It's especially up front, a very risky strategy because you basically put the business case together, huge investment in terms of the technology that you need to bring online, the resources that you need to use to staff this. And to your point, Obviously, when you create a new community, there's nobody in the community at first. So it's basically your team that has like five different roles that they're playing. Yeah. They're popping questions in, then they put on a new hat and they're answering the same questions they just posted. And you're doing everything you can to create enough momentum to get other people there. And then you reach this tipping point yeah. where suddenly people are drawn in and you also have people that feel an identity and actually want to engage and, and provide answers and that's when the momentum starts. And then to your point, you know, SEO gives you a lift and, and Google becomes your friend. But getting to that point is so painful. And so many times you're going to get challenged by the CEO, yeah. by the, the head of sales. Why are we doing this again? What aren't you doing while you're doing this? And uh, so it takes a lot of fortitude to push through. Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting. I was just thinking like drug companies, they have to invest billions of dollars with uncertain outcomes you know, and you have to convince the CFO, like, let's invest a billion dollars in this disease and who knows what's going to come out of it. And that's the way it is with a community. You're not quite sure, you know, it's high fixed cost, low variable cost. You got to get sort of a break even, a critical mass of people in the community. That's interesting. You know, sometimes with community, uh, we've had some interesting questions arise. Uh, I'm sort of interested how you would do it. So let's say the community start talking about one of your competitors. What do you, do you just let them do that? Like they say, hey, we're thinking about leaving, you know, people AI or Eloqua or something. And what do people recommend? Like, do you let those conversations go? Or let's say they don't like something that we've launched a feature and they start trashing you in the community. Like, do you just let it go or do you try to take it offline? How would you handle something like that? And maybe you have. Yeah, that that is a classic question. I think that first and foremost, you need to recognize that people are drawn to a community because of the authenticity and yeah. a feeling that they're going to get objective, unbiased information. And as soon as that is undermined, you've basically killed the goose that lays the golden egg. Now, I do think you can be smart about it. And some of the things that I've done in the past when, when names of competitors come up, if I do post something, I'll say, I'm obviously not the expert on this company. And I would invite someone who has engaged with that product to share their perspectives. I can share with you what we are doing on this side, um, just so you've got that, that piece of information. I think people genuinely respect when you are speaking from an area of authenticity and also authority, and you're also deferring the conversations where you have an obvious bias 
and letting other people handle those. Yeah, that, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, sometimes you get a CEO or someone that says, we got to shut that down. And then how do you convince them that you're killing the goose that laid the golden egg here? The authenticity, the realism, you can't be doing that. But I think there are good ways to handle that. But I faced that quite a few times. We're, we're running a series of C, CRO and CMO forums. And our promise on that is there's no vendor pitches. You can talk about anything that you want to talk about, uh, but we're not going to bring other vendors on. We're not going to talk about our products ourselves. And sometimes the people on will talk about people.ai and we love that, but sometimes they'll talk about our competitor and we absolutely don't screen that. We don't filter that. And I think people walk away and their reaction is, that was, that was a great conversation. I actually want to come back for the next one. And then we've won, we've won the war as a result of that. It's ironic that the less you talk about yourself, the more interest people have in you. It's just kind of crazy. You know what I mean? This sort of humbleness, this modesty really begets a lot of interest. That's a great story. I want to talk a little bit about the stumbles as well. Obviously, it was a great run at Eloqua and you did some amazing things. Uh, I got to imagine, though, that it wasn't all up and to the right and there were some learnings uh, on your side, especially bringing that consulting mindset into the operator's world. Can you share maybe some of the things that you learned while you're at Eloqua? Yeah, a couple of things. Uh, the first is uh, I joined Eloqua in 2008, right around the recession. Within two weeks, the CEO tells me I have to lay off a third of the marketing team. And I said, why? Let's just raise more money. He says, there may not be more money to raise. We're having a recession and we got to assume whatever money we have in the bank is all we're going to have. And so trying to do less, uh, trying to do more with less people, trying to prioritize ruthlessly with what you do. So that was sort of one lesson. I try to be lean whatever I do uh, and not build a team that's too large. Um, one lesson. The other important lesson is speed really matters. When we um, were in the market at Eloqua early days, we had the market to ourselves. And it was kind of an evangelical sell. We were talking about the category. And then lo and behold, this little dot, this little nothing company Marketo comes speeding along and they kicked us in the ass. And what I've learned is that's a good thing, not for the obvious reasons that if you have a competitor, it validates the category and it means there's something really good here, but because you have to move faster and um, you have to really compete every single day. Now, the category uh, ended up really trifurcating pretty well. At the enterprise level, Eloqua still had the largest companies in the world. Marketo was really good at middle-sized companies. They had a good price point. They didn't have as many features. And HubSpot did a really good job at SMBs and you know, law firms and delicatessens and hair salons, You know, sort of a very, very small business. So the market did well, but speed really matters. You know, We were about to launch some products and we delayed because they weren't as good as we'd like them to be. They were at like 95%. And uh, lo and behold, Marketo launched some features right ahead of us. And so uh, one lesson for me is speed really matters in launches, in marketing, in product development. And even if it's not perfect, you know, as you know, Justin, you can fix it in real time. The campaign's not working, adjust it. You know, we do a lot of uh, testing. We'll send out something to 10,000 people. If it works well, you know, we'll do it more if it doesn't work that well. So we're always piloting things. Almost anything I do, I don't go wall to wall. I pilot things, whether it's a new technology or a new sales process or a new narrative or a new deck for a sales team. Um, so I'm always piloting things. That comment really resonates with me. I think most of us throughout our career and throughout our lives have aspired to excellence. We, we want to put in that extra amount of effort and just get it to be great. 
And what I found as a marketer, you still need to aspire to excellence, but you also need to redefine excellence. And part of the dimension of excellence is the timeliness. You need to be the first out there. You need to be the one that is introducing the innovative ideas. And sometimes that means the ideas aren't perfect, but the timing matters just as much, if not more, than the actual concept. And one, the other thing I love about what you said is we now have the tools to literally be able to refine things on the fly. My team actually just last week launched something. There was a pressing deadline. We had to get it out there. We put it out in the market and then someone said, wait, we missed this. Well, through the technology that we were using in two minutes, we had updated that and cascaded it across all of the different touch points. That's something that, you know, when you're working on a, uh, on a uh, Xerox machine and sending things out via snail mail, you can't do that. But today, that's part of the reality and the marketer needs to work with that in their toolbox. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And the marketing team's got to understand that. But sometimes that sense of perfection and doing, making it perfect permeates the whole team. And they have to accept the idea that it's not going to be perfect, that you can make changes on the fly. There are some things you can change. You know, so if you have a 30 second Super Bowl spot, that's a problem. Get you know, it right. You've got a big ad in the New York Times and it lays an egg or there's an obvious error in it. You know, it's just it's out there for the whole world to see and it lasts forever. So sometimes uh, making mistakes in those areas. But anything that's digital is completely correctable and and people ought to feel that it's OK to get the 90 percent to wherever they're comfortable being. I wanted to talk a little bit about Lattice Engines as well. That's a company that got me really excited, cutting edge, AI, helping marketers. You were the CMO there for a while. Tell me a little bit about your experience at Lattice and some of the takeaways that you had from that that time. Well, I love the team and I love the mission. I was looking for something after Eloqua. I love MarTech. And I truly believe that AI and machine learning was sort of the future. And I also love the team at Lattice Engines. It was a bunch of PhDs, a bunch of former McKinsey people. So super smart. They love to really dig into things. And I, I felt it was a very comfortable team of people that I wanted to work with, the leadership. You know, they've they've since been bought by Dun & Bradstreet, which is a perfect marriage. You know, Dun & Bradstreet's got the data. Lattice Engines has the brain, the AI, and all the intelligence for the data. So it had a good outcome there. But we were a little early to market. You know, this idea of predictive analytics, there were like eight companies chasing this little tiny emerging market, and all those companies were overfunded with VC money. So they're just spending money like crazy to build a category, and there weren't enough leading people uh, that wanted to try it. And, you know, confession, a lot of the early customers failed miserably. You know, we looked at accounts that were predicted to buy and accounts that weren't predicted to buy. And, you know, we did a lot of A-B testing, and the companies using it did not have that much success. And so they were paying for something that had a nice sheen to it. We had a good message about predictive analytics. It just didn't work that well. So you can be too early to market. You know, think about crossing the chasm. This category hadn't crossed the chasm at all. And uh, it was just too early. And that's, you know, it's very hard to choose what company you work for. You know, if you have one eloquent a career, that's plenty. Um, I was hoping to capture magic again in a bottle with Lattice Engines. Uh, we were just too early to market. And even now, you know, what's happened with predictive analytics, you don't need a separate vendor for it. Like you can do a lot of AI and predictive analytics with all sorts of different tools now. It's become commoditized. You know, I kind of joke like, um, you know, 20 years ago, you'd call yourself a dot-com company. Well, now every company is a dot-com. You don't have to say you're a dot-com company. And then let's say 10 years ago, everybody said, we're a cloud company. Well, every company is a cloud company. 
And it's like AI. You don't have to be an AI company because we're all AI companies now. So I think it was sort of a, a specialty company that uh, ended up making more sense for every product to have AI embedded in it as opposed to a specialty AI company. Every, every company now is using AI in some ways, whether it's Salesforce you know, with Einstein or whether it's Microsoft or every company is doing AI in some way. I want to go back to the, the point you made about uh, Jeffrey Morris crossing the chasm. My observation is that companies are too quick to assert that they have crossed the chasm. And where that creates tension is obviously once you've crossed the chasm, that means that you're ready to move into the majority and you need to throw fuel on the, the fire of sales and marketing and really scale the business. Well, if you're doing that and you haven't truly established product market fit, you haven't built a product that does appeal to the masses, you're essentially throwing money away and you would be in a better spot to really refine the product, make sure that you've nailed the use case. So I think as, as executives, we need to be very cautious and also very objective about where we are as a company, where the market is, and how we're meeting the specific needs that, that we're purporting to address. Classic mistake is you hire the marketer too early. It's just not ready. That's what happened at Lattice Engines. The best way to kill a bad product is with great marketing. So we marketed the hell out of it. We had a bunch of people trying it and then a bunch of rejectors. So now you've seeded the market with hundreds of try rejectors. What are they going to say? They're a table reference. You know, I think about, you know, you go into Whole Foods Market and there's somebody like giving you a sample of salsa or a marshmallow or something and you taste it and it's terrible. <laughs> you know, you'll tell three people that it's a horrible product. So, you know, Lattice Engines, we were a little too early to market. And of course, I'm the marketer. I want to spend money and tell the world about our crappy little product. So we put the gas down. We marketed the hell out, went to every conference we, and we sold everybody. And within six months, we had a whole bunch of people who were really bad mouthing us. And that really hurt the category. So exactly what happened to us, it was too early. We hadn't crossed the chasm, but we had convinced ourselves that we had. And of course, they hired me as the marketer. What does a marketer do? He markets. You know, my father, who was a surgeon, his solution to every patient was, Let's operate. You know, I said, Dad, let's do an X-ray. What do you think we ought to do? No, no, no. The person needs an operation. You know, and so as a marketer, what's the answer? Get the message out. Like, let's advertise. Like, let's do campaigns. Sometimes the smartest decision is to hold off until you have really good product market fit, as you suggest. And and the 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 thing that compounds that issue is you typically have a founder in seat who is enamored with their product. They love it. It's the most beautiful baby ever. And so then you bring the marketer in that says, this is great. I'm ready to take this big time. And the CEO says, sign me up full speed ahead. So uh, you're right. It's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting challenge that uh, one finds him or herself in. Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and then we'll jump back into the conversation. Welcome back. You're listening to Legends of Sales and Marketing, and I'm your host, Justin Schreiber. Let's get back to the discussion. All right, let's talk about Fuse. You, uh, at, at Fuse, you've got a great story about a rebrand. I always like to talk about rebrands because this is the, uh, ironically for the marketer, branding is anathema. It is so hard, so complicated. Take us through your story. And if you can, please share words of wisdom on how to make the rebrand a simpler process. You know, I think all of us have sort of watched in horror as marketers explain the rebrand to the company. And it's just, it's like in slow motion, the worst thing you can imagine. They talk about the colors and the logo, what it means. 
And it's like, it's a disaster. Particularly, I've seen marketers do this to the board of directors and they're ready to puke. Like, it's just horrible. So um, a few things. The original name of the company I joined was called Thinking Phones. And we did research and we found out people thought it was a terrible name because it relates to phones and people don't use phones anymore. And, and we were trying to move to being a video platform as well as chat, as well as voice. We acquired a company called Fuse, F-U-Z-E in California. It's a video company, uh, not unlike Zoom or BlueJean or any number of those companies. And so we had a brand that was registered around the world and it seemed like a natural one problem for me was our CEO founder and his wife, they love the name Thinking Phones. So I had to work with them a little on that. You know, they the double teamed you, the founder and the wife. Yeah. Two on one. <laughs> yeah. I asked, you know, somebody else, I said, uh, you know, who came up with this name? It says, oh, the founder and his wife. They really like it. They sort of together, they came up with the blue color and the like, you know, that's what founders do. They work at their kitchen table and they do the logo and the name. And that's part of the beauty of of a founding company, but sometimes that locks in. So um, I did a couple of things. One is I had a couple of friendlies on the board who I knew pretty well. And so I started to socialize it with board members about the name change. Obviously I talked to the CEO who talked to his wife and also I had research that backed it up. So the word thinking phones was imbued with a lot of baggage and things that didn't really work. Fuse about fuse coming together. It's about video and chat and voice. And it it seemed to work. Obviously, we would own a four-letter URL that is not all consonants. You know, it's like, wow, F, it's a real word and you can own it. Isn't that wonderful? And uh, so there's a lot of benefits to it. And it worked out really well. So the rebranding was very much not about colors or fonts or that sort of thing. It was about a substantive business name. I also spoke to the sales team. And they found that Thinking Phones got a lot of hangups. Nobody returned the calls. Fuse was just a more accessible name. There were a lot of issues with it. You know, there is a product, uh, a soft drink by the Coca-Cola company that's spelled the exact same way. Not a trademark issue. As you know, you can call things the same thing as long as you're in different categories. Think about Delta. There's Delta Airlines, Delta Faucets. I think it was like a Delta Dental. You know, so you can use the same name as long as the rule is, as long as it doesn't cause confusion. And so we didn't think this would cause any confusion. And so we applied, you know, for the trademark, uh, you know, we got it for this new category, not just video, but all sorts of unified communications. And so it worked out really well. The company rebranded. It was literally the first thing I did within uh, three months of joining the company, we rebranded, uh, which was quite wonderful. I think CMOs, and maybe you found this your career, like you get a get out of jail free card the first year, like you can do almost anything you want. And then it sort of locks in like, oh, Justin's a new CMO. He's got a lot of good ideas. Let's let him go with it. So I felt that I had a lot of um, uh, strong equity to to go ahead with that. So it was, it was very positive and the company did well. You know, there's a lot of technical things about redirects and website and organic search, but we worked through all that. The big simplifier, of course, was we own the trademark and the URL, fuse.com, which a lot of companies don't have. If we had had to start from scratch, you can imagine, you know, what's available now if you want to start a company. It's pretty challenging. Yeah. Like people.ai. <laughs> people.ai. So the best branding advice I ever got came from Mr. Jacobson, my high school calculus teacher. He said, show your work. I love that. That is so That's wonderful. it. Yeah. Show your work. You, you, you start off, you explain the problem, you explain how you're going to solve it, you bring people in to the, the process, you bring them along. And, and I found that actually 
you want to over communicate to the point where people are like, uncle, you've involved me enough. You, you know what I, whatever you guys want to do at this point, that's where you want to be versus I have no idea what you guys are doing. I've never seen this. And now let me unload on you all the reasons I think it's wrong. So well, Mr. Jacobson was very wise. Um, <laughs> you know, sometimes I tell my team, sometimes you have to go slow to go fast. We all want to go fast. But with a rebranding, you got to slow down and bring everybody along for the ride yeah. and show your work. That's a great example. Yeah. All right. Uh, I know sales and marketing is a topic that is near and dear to your heart. You have a little bit of a unique perspective, though, on the dynamic between the marketer and the sales executive. Tell us a little bit about where that's coming from. Uh, I do. So I'm a career CMO. And then I joined Envision uh, about a year and a half ago as CMO. And two months in, the CEO, Clark, calls me and says, Brian, I'm going to make a change in sales. And I'm thinking, oh, he's going to let the sales guy go. I really like him. He's a great guy. He says, no, Brian, sales now reports to you, the marketer. And I said, wow. So I tell my wife and she laughs hysterically. And the reason she laughs hysterically is she runs sales for a company and she's a lifelong vice president of sales, a sales manager. I said, honey, why are you laughing? She says, well, you're not going to count your birthdays in quarters. You now have a number on your back. You ought to be planning your exit. You got to think about doing a reforecast for the second half because you're not going to hit your number. She had all these like classic things that are going on. And she says, and by the way, who are you going to blame when the leads suck? <laughs> it's you, you know? So with all these sort of classic things. So um, she really got a good kick out of that. But I will say, as someone who's always been a marketer and always had a lot of opinions about sales, it has been extremely energizing for me to be able to use different muscles and to learn new things you know, like you, Justin, I can tell you're a very curious person. You ask questions. You wonder how things work. I find that in sales too. Like I have to work on things that I never worked on before in sales, like territories and quota and how to set up the right commission structure. And, you know, a lot of the things I'm pretty good at, like lead routing and BDRs and what's qualified and what isn't and sales enablement, I'm pretty good at. But a lot of the motivation, you know, they're motivated by very different things in sales. They're very different people. And, you know, I think obviously the time frame matters, you know, I won't go into all the things, but, you know, marketing thinks about contacts and salespeople think about accounts, you know, the sales team thinks about this quarter, the marketing team's thinking about next quarter, um, you know, it's, it's all these different things. And so what I love is that I can make stuff happen really fast because I don't need the other person to agree with me. It's like the buck stops here. So I've got someone who runs growth marketing for me and I have a sales leader and they're both wonderful and I can really push it all together and make things happen very fast. So I'm enjoying it. Um, my wife continues to laugh at me and finds it very funny, but I, I just really enjoy it. And one thing that's happened is I gained more respect for salespeople than I ever had before. And one thing that I've learned is that you have to walk in the shoes of a salesperson. One thing that I saw that marketers were doing is we were over-instrumenting what we wanted salespeople to do. So we had bought all these new technologies and it's like we had designed a cockpit from like a jet plane and they just want a clock and they want to know how fast they're going. You know, you just got to ease it up. And uh, and what I found is that that last mile or the last couple of yards, marketers think salespeople are doing something. They're not doing it that way. After COVID, you know, you got to make sure that you plunk yourselves and understand what a salesperson does, sit next to them, understand a day in the life of a salesperson it's a hard job. It's really a hard job. And uh, I would encourage all marketers to do selling for a while and to sit alongside salespeople to understand their world. 
I always give that advice to aspiring and aspiring marketers, spend time in sales, carry the bag. There's difference between working with salespeople and actually feeling the pressure, feeling, feeling the burden of the number. Your, your story previously brought to mind a conversation I was having with John McMahon, uh, one of the great sales leaders out there. And John, John was on our board of directors at Fuse, and I'm reading his book right now. Have you gotten his book? It's a great book. It's a He's great an book. unbelievable guy. He's like one in a million. Yeah. So he said, you know, I was at the end of a quarter and um, I'm doing my thing, which is I'm closing business. And the CMO approaches me at one point and says, John, I've been sending you email and you haven't been responding. What's going on? And John said, it's the last two weeks of the quarter. I'm closing business. And I've told everyone that I don't respond to email in the last two weeks of the quarter. What I loved about that story is John was so laser focused on the one thing he and his team had to do, which was close business. And to your point, the ability of a sales team to simplify the mission and get laser focused on it is what makes them successful. But that's different than marketers. Marketers are juggling a lot of priorities. They're thinking short-term, medium-term, long-term. And you need to be able to adjust the mindset as you move from one domain to the other. Yeah, it's such a good lesson about focusing on the sales team, doing fewer things. You know, this idea of uh, of timing really matters. You know, sometimes we'll schedule an all-hands meeting for the company the last week of the quarter. Why would we do that? It's like, no one's thinking. Like, we have a whole bunch of people, we have hundreds of people that are selling, trying to close deals to hit our number. So people don't always understand that. But I love John's, you know, focus on just one thing. He's not going to listen to anything or do anything else. That's Except right. ride his bike. He's always riding his bike. He, he is a bike rider. He's in great shape. The other piece of advice I always give to marketers, and this came while I was in sales as well, is there is a finite capacity that the salesperson has to capture and digest information. It has nothing to do with their intelligence. They have so much stuff going around in their brains just trying to get deals done, remember who the key decision makers are, the influencers. You have to be very, very careful to choose what you give to the salesperson, because anything beyond that is just going to flow over the sides of the cup and and it's not going to be captured. So be very uh, disciplined about planning out training, new capabilities, new information. And if if you do it right, that's the stuff that's really going to stick. To that point, we had a whole bunch of product launches scheduled one after the other. And uh, the product team said, hey, we're ready to go. Is marketing and sales ready? And I said, you can't do this. It's like a sponge. You can pour water on the sponge. It can only absorb so much. And at some point, the sponge can't take any more water. So we had to spread out. And it's really weird that the ability for the sales team to absorb what we had to say about these different products made us really stretch out some of these dates for product launches. You just can't you know, handle so much. But the other issue with companies is everyone wants to get in front of the sales team. And so we've all been to sales kickoffs or meetings where it's just death by slides, one after the other, after the other. So I think good sales leaders are are relentless about just what do they need to know? Don't give them anything else. But, you know, the life of a salesperson, they get so many internal meetings and so many internal emails and slacks and messages. It's, It's really very challenging for, I think, a salesperson to be focused in most organizations. All right. So as the head of sales, you obviously are laser focused on landing the business We know that conventional wisdom teaches that the secret to the success of any salesperson is dogged tenacity. You just got to stay in the saddle. No matter matter how hard the Bronco bucks, you got to stay in there. 
which is why I wanted to talk to you about a very con- uh, controversial piece you posted on LinkedIn, which is the folly of persistence. Do tell us about why persistence can sometimes be a folly. You know, there's so many awards for people who are persistent. You know, I think about uh, the movie Wall Street. This character, Bud, kept calling, you know, Michael Douglas, you know, and he said, kid, next to the word persistence, I see a photo of you in the dictionary. And uh, and but in fact, there's a fall off point where there's diminishing returns. But sometimes people get rewarded or they have a story. You know, it becomes legend that I I was trying to reach that prospect. I called them 118 times and they picked up on the 119th call. Uh, But in fact, the data suggests that there is a point where you should stop calling and stop emailing. And that point is eight. Uh, So we looked at hundreds of thousands of records. This is at Lattice Engines. We did predictive analytics. uh, And I tried to answer the question because we're trying to figure out the SLA for the BDR team. Like if the BDR team wanted to connect with a prospect or a lead, how many calls, how many emails, when should they stop? And the leader of that team at the time said, they got to keep going until they connect. And I said, I'm not so sure that that's a good use of their time. Maybe they ought to spend it on a new lead or spend it on a higher quality lead. And so we looked at it quantitatively. And I would encourage you know, some of your listeners, if they want, they can go to my LinkedIn and find the article. But it's got the data there that really suggests there is a point of which don't be persistent. Uh, and yet, you know, people reward persistence in so many different ways, but it's not always a good thing. So what's the difference then between a quitter and someone who applies persistence intelligently? Yeah, it's it's a great question. Uh, you know, I think the word quitter uh, has such negative connotations. Uh, you know, it's really about, you know, optimizing your time. You only have, if you're going to make 100 dials in a day, where do you want to direct those? So I don't think you're quitting doing anything. You're still persistent. You're just pursuing different leads, ones that are higher quality. Certainly timeliness. So if it's a lead from three weeks ago, that's going to cool off. All the data suggests that you have to respond to a lead in minutes. Um, and also the quality of your response matters. And by the way, we're seeing great response rates uh, of leads from bots. So humans can't always respond to leads as quickly as they would like. And we're seeing that if you don't get to leads within a couple of hours, don't even bother. So we're looking at a lot of AI tools now that are performing better than BDRs at connecting or at least qualifying someone to get to the next stage. But uh, yeah, quitting is not good, but being intelligent uh, about your persistence really matters. Well, Brian, it's been a great conversation. Let me wrap up with one final question. As you look back across the arc of your life, what's that one thing in your mind that's made the biggest difference? If I could get emotional for just a second here, you know, my my father always, he's passed away now, but he was a doctor. And I remember he was always reading and always learning. And I said, dad, you're a great surgeon. You're a great professor. Why are you always reading these medical journals? And he said, Brian, you know, the science changes all the time. Uh, there are new surgical procedures, new sutures, new techniques for doing different surgeries. Um, I want to stay on top of it. I want to be the best surgeon in the world. So I have to read. And I have to learn continuously. And the lesson for me from my father was that uh, marketing too changes all the time. I grew up in marketing before there was digital marketing. It was all physical. And so everything I learned in business school or most are, are not really applicable now, at least to a digital world. And so great marketers are continuously learning, whether, like you said, it's a campaign you tried, it didn't work, and you added something last minute, or you do an A-B test. So this idea of curiosity and continuous learning, and that's something I interview for. I'm sure you do as well. So I want to make sure everyone on my marketing team has that curiosity. 
And we celebrate failures all the time. And I want my team to feel that way. Every child is not above average and every campaign is not above average. So we look at the ones that didn't perform and we're always trying to get better and better and learn. Well, thank you so much for that wisdom, that advice, and Brian, also for the great stories. It's been a great chat. Thank you. Pleasure, Justin. Thanks for tuning in today to Legends of Sales and Marketing. For more inspiring stories about how today's most influential sales and marketing execs got their start and made their mark, be sure to check out the full lineup of guests. Listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you find interesting conversations. This podcast is brought to you by People.ai. People.ai auto-populates CRM with business activity sourced directly from sales teams inboxes. Visit People.ai to learn more about how sales and marketing teams can harness business activity to unlock growth.